0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Mech in the Mech, making entrepreneurship core at the Mason Enterprise Center. I'm your host, Andrew Stockwell. In today's episode, we have Bob Wild to talk to us about negotiating commercial contracts. Greetings, Bob. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. My name's Bob Weil. I have a solo practice here in Fairfax. I've been practicing law for 27 long years. The first 15 or so were spent doing insurance defense litigation. I defended architects and engineers and insurance agents and brokers, some lawyers some doctors in essentially professional malpractice cases. I decided about 16 years ago that I didn't want that to be the focus anymore, and went to work with a firm in District of Columbia that focused on nonprofit work, and I just got hung up on it, I love it. And so about six months ago, I came out to Fairfax with my own practice, brought all my clients with me, and currently I represent probably 20 to 24, in that range, nonprofit organizations that are located in Virginia and D.C., Maryland, and other parts of the country.
0: Why is proper negotiation for commercial contracts so critical for a company?
1: Because really, a nonprofit's no different than a for-profit business. They hire vendors, they have people that have to perform services for them, they need software, they need the same things that a for-profit business requires. And the big difference though is that nonprofits, many of my clients in particular, don't have the same level of revenue that's necessary to pay for the legal services to negotiate and to review the contracts. And sometimes, what I find is I get call from a client after the contract has been signed, saying, "This language doesn't work for us. This isn't fair. You know, we can't do this." Well, the problem is that oftentimes it's too late. Once you sign the contract, you're stuck. So, what I try to convey to my clients is the need to be proactive and to just. Take the time to review the contract carefully themselves before they sign it. And rather than simply sign it, send it to their lawyer, whoever it is. Whether it's, I, I make this recommendation to my clients and to any other nonprofit that I'm talking to, that they need their lawyer to look at it. It's far better to spend a couple of hours worth of your attorney's time up front before you sign the contract than to spend a lot more time with your lawyer after you've signed the contract and there's an issue. So it is really critical. And it's a mindset that I've worked to overcome with my clients. And they're all very good about it now, mostly because they know approximately how much time it's going to take me to take a look at the typical contract they send me. I'll give you an example. I was in front of a group of nonprofits about a week ago doing a similar presentation. None of them were my clients. And when I asked how many had their contracts reviewed by legal counsel beforehand out of, I don't know, probably 40 nonprofits in the room. Maybe about four or five put their hands up. So if I accomplished anything during that presentation, it was to remind them of the importance of having their legal counsel look at it early.
0: What are some challenges businesses face during a commercial contract negotiation?
1: What I find is, in this market in particular, there doesn't appear to be as much of a willingness on the part of some vendors, some service providers to negotiate. Personally, I would think it would be just the opposite, given the fact that the economy's down and everyone's looking for business. I think that many nonprofits and, and, and for-profit clients as well, smaller businesses, which is really the other part of my client base, are reluctant to push too hard in negotiating contracts. And you know, if there's any premise you should start with, When you are looking to contract with another party, it's that really everything should be on the table. I tell clients, people who aren't my clients, if you're looking to do business with another company that's unwilling to negotiate or unwilling to talk about certain really critical provisions or provisions that are important to you, you need to be wary. You need to be thinking about whether or not this is somebody you want to do business with. And because, believe me, for every person that comes to you and isn't willing to negotiate a critical term or condition, there's probably five or six more out there who will. And I think that's something my clients and, and and small businesses in general need to be aware of, that don't jump at the first contract. If you're finding that it's overly difficult to get the other side to talk to you or to even concede on some pretty basic points that are critical to you, then maybe you need to be looking elsewhere.
0: What are the best ways to avoid these challenges?
1: I think, for the, from the standpoint of the small business and the nonprofit, uh, large companies around here have their own internal general counsel, and believe me, they review contracts to to the end. Um, it's not an issue for them. For smaller businesses who don't have you know, legal counsel and staff, and who are reluctant to pay an hourly rate to have a lawyer look at it my recommendation is at the very least have someone in your office, in the office, whether it be the CFO or the COO, go through the contract with a fine tooth comb. And if something doesn't sound right or just makes you uncomfortable, circle it. And make a list of the, th- of the points that are critical that you might want to take to your lawyer to reduce maybe the time that he or she spends reviewing it. My first choice is that a client send the contract to the lawyer with a list of you know the five or six critical things that they want out of this contract. Identify in advance what you want the lawyer to be trying to figure out how to get into the contract or take out of the contract. If you don't do that, then what happens is the lawyer ends up sometimes glossing over something that might be important to you that might not have seemed important to him. And I think that's the best way to start the process, I think, for a small business these days. I mean, there are there are critical provisions in every commercial contract these days. I have certain provisions that I just pound home with my clients every time. And I look at it really coming from a sort of loss prevention background. Being an insurance defense lawyer, I tended to see what would happen in the worst case when things got to litigation and how expensive it would be. So I tend to look at contracts now in terms of negotiation as, what can I do to make it least likely that, A, my client's going to end up in a dispute, whether it's litigation, arbitration, or whatever. And there are certain provisions that I pretty much insist on in any contract with my, for my clients. If the other side refuses to bend on those, all I can do is say to my client, look, these are critical provisions to me, and this is why. If you choose to go ahead... You do so at some risk. And my own sense, and I'll I'll give you an example, In, in any contract for services, I look for indemnification. If I'm contracting with another firm, another company to do something for me, or they're contracting with me to do something for them, there should be language in the agreement that calls for what's called mutual indemnification. And what that means is each side is responsible for its own negligence or its own, or any damages or injuries that flow from its misconduct under the contract. I believe that everybody should be responsible for their own screw-ups under a contract. And you'd be stunned to see the number of conform contracts that will come in where the vendor expects the party it's contracting with, my client, to indemnify it in case of a third-party claim, but refuses to do the same for my client. And to me, that tends to be a non-starter. My view of it is mutual indemnification is fair. That's all it is. It, it's just being equitable. It's making each side responsible to the other for a third-party claim that's, that's caused by the one contracting party, the indemnifying party. And if they're unwilling to do that, that says a lot about them. Because quite frankly, virtually every company out there has insurance that would take care of it anyway. So if they're unwilling to do it, that really tends to put me off in terms of advising my client to continue to work with these people.
0: Why is it important for a business like nonprofits to pursue legal counsel when negotiating commercial contracts?
1: As I mentioned earlier, because I think what happens is, to save time, to save money, they'll skimp on whether it's contract negotiation or or any other sort of legal service because they don't want to spend you know, what they think is an exorbitant hourly rate, Because when nonprofits put their budgets together, you know, each year, the one item they're not putting a lot of money into is legal fees. That's just, to a lot of people, a lot of executives in the nonprofit world, that's a black hole. Uh, Unfortunately, it's also your loss prevention hole. And like insurance, it's one you really need to be ready to spend some money on. You know non profits can work with their outside legal counsel on a you know they can work with them on an hourly basis that you know that's at a rate they can afford they can do it in in terms of a retainer if that makes them more comfortable and allows for better budgeting. but I think the important thing is to get the lawyer involved before the problems occur i mean it's hey i like I don't mind if they come to me after the problems occur because quite frankly. <laughs> That's when most of my time is going to be spent, which is, you know, counterproductive to the nonprofit. Whereas if they come to me early, the chances are my time spent on the issue is going to be pretty minimal. Uh, and and the second thing I think in this world, it's a very litigious society. People file lawsuits at the drop of a hat, and that being the case, as I as I described earlier, having the right insurance is key. It's just there's just no getting around it. And what I tell clients is stay in touch with your lawyer and stay in touch with your insurance agent. You should sit down with your insurance agent annually, every year, to review your policy and to review anything new you might be doing. I'll give you an example. I had a client, a nonprofit client, that along the way decided to initiate a professional certification program, which meant essentially that they establish a test and, requ- and certain requirements that members and non-members could take. And, and as long as they met, they received a certification from the organization that they could list on their business cards that showed they're certified to do A, B, and C. And that helps them in their advertising and marketing. But it also has the potential to create a higher expectation on the part of the consumer. If they see somebody with a certification mark on their yellow page ad, they go, well, this guy must know what he's doing. Well, the problems that can occur or or the expectations that can be created for that individual can also come back and haunt the association that issues the certification. Why? Because people are relying on that certification and if they see it was issued by ABC Trade Association, they're assuming that this person must have met certain high standards established by this group. Well, the typical directors and officers policy that would issue for the average run of the mill nonprofit or trade association might not include coverage for certification program, which falls under an antitrust provision or an unfair trade practice provision. It probably doesn't include it. So if you have a claim, it may not be covered. So it's important Whenever any business, any nonprofit in particular, starts a new program, whether they bring in a new start a new publication or they start a new certification program, that they notify the insurance agent who can then pass that information on to the insurance company and determine A whether or not it will be underwritten and covered. And if it is, great. But you have to keep people informed of those sorts of changes.
0: What would you say is the proper procedure when negotiating commercial contracts?
1: I think you have to go in with the mindset that everything's negotiable. In reality, it may not be, but you have to go in with that mindset. If you don't, what you find yourself, you're immediately put on the defensive. When someone says, and I give you an example of the indemnification, layers. well, we don't negotiate that. We don't do indemnification. Well, again, you got to think, is this somebody I want to do business with? Another example might be insurance. Do they have insurance? A lot of, a lot of contracts I see don't address the issue. Other provisions that, are, that come to mind that are really critical, and I think you have to go into negotiation with sort of having thought it out in advance. For example, I tend to steer clients away from really long-term contracts. Obviously, the person on the other side wants the long-term contract if they're a service provider. makes life predictable for them. But unless that contract has a way for my client to get out if they're not satisfied, it's pretty hard if they get into a relationship that's five, six, seven years in length, and then suddenly don't like the services. So I tend to tell clients that from the outset, come to the table with a mindset, you're willing to give the other side a few years, but long term is not in the picture, unless you can get very generous out language. You can sometimes entice parties that are hoping for a long-term contract if you have language in there that calls for a renewal. Maybe there's an automatic renewal period for an additional two or three years unless the other side or the non-renewing side gives, has to give notice within a certain period of time. So you have to come to the table with ideas on how to get what you want. Know what you want and how am I going to get it. Okay, if I don't want long-term, can I get it for a shorter term? And what do I have to give up to get that? Do I have to allow for automatic renewal? Maybe I do. As long as there's notice provisions where you can non-renew or opt-out, you're fine. So come to the table prepared. Talk to your lawyer after you've had a chance to review the contract and make a list of those provisions. Another another example of a really critical provision for nonprofits is confidentiality. N- nonprofits often enter into agreements with vendors that that may do marketing or promotion for them, or that are going to have access to their membership list and, and confidential information. Members don't like when you sell your membership list, because then they end up getting swamped with phone calls and emails. So it is very important to preserve your relationship with your members to ensure that that membership list stays with the vendor you are working with, and that vendor alone. And they have to warrant in the agreement that they will not transfer, share, sell, do anything with that membership list other than use it to fulfill their obligations under the under the contract so that your members stay free of
0: being harassed. Before we end, is there anything you'd like to say to any listeners out there?
1: No, I think another issue that, that comes up is, is that consulting agreements where you're dealing with an independent contractor it's the term "independent contractor" is frequently abused. It's sort of like work for hire. The key to being able to distinguish between an employer, an employee rather, and an independent contractor is the level of control that the principal has over behavior, finances. Those are the two big items. And sometimes you will see instances where an organization will contract with someone as an independent contractor but retain so much control over the methods, the means, finances, even the behavior. You know, they have to come into the office to work, they have to work these hours, that they take that individual out of the realm of independent contractor and make him an employee. And so it's something that any business, whether it's for-profit or non-profit needs to consider very carefully when they're entering into a consulting agreement. Make sure that person is in fact an independent contractor and make sure you structure the contract to ensure that he or she remains an independent contractor.
0: Thank you for joining us on another episode of Mech in the Make making entrepreneurship core at the Mason Enterprise Center. Until then, make a difference.